Morning, everybody. Happy bank holiday weekend. If that is a thing, I don't know, it is now. Good to see you all. Great to see some visitors, too. If you're here for the first time, as Matt said earlier, great to have you with us. It's good to be here together to worship God, isn't it? There's an outline on your chair. If you find that helpful, there's various things to fill in as we go through, but everything will be up on the screen as well. Now, the night before Jesus was crucified, he said these words, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these. If anyone, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing, he, will do, he or she will do even greater things than these. What had Jesus been doing? Well, he'd fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. He'd turned water into wine. He'd walked on the water. He'd raised the dead. He'd healed the blind. He'd cast out demons. He did some amazing things as he revealed God to a watching world. But Jesus told his disciples, and therefore all that then become their disciples, that's us here this morning if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he told his disciples that they would do even greater things than he did. So what on earth was he meaning by that? Was he meaning that his followers, people like you and, he, you and me here this morning, would do even greater miracles than Jesus did? Is it possible to do a greater miracle than Jesus did? This is a picture of my dad with Jonah, his great-grandson and my great-nephew. And when I was little, a little bit older than Jonah, but when I was little, I used to think that my dad could do absolutely anything and that he knew absolutely everything. My dad worked in law enforcement all his life, and when I was probably about six or so, he was running an informant who was working, uh, kind of linked in with a terrorist organization, and he received a tip-off that some weapons were being brought into London, there were some bombs and, and guns and so on, being into, brought into London in a lorry, in the back of a lorry. So working with the counter-terrorist police, he had one of the major motorways in the southeast of England shut down. He uh, brought this lorry into the service station, had it searched by the, 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 uh, the armed police. And the crazy thing was, and what he was thinking, what my mum was thinking, I have no idea, but he took me and my brothers with him. And we were in the back of the car watching this unfolding. I'm not sure what he was thinking or how he was even allowed to do that. But anyway, armed police shut down the motorway. They, they closed off this service station, and they had this lorry search, which turned out, fortunately, not to have any weapons or bombs in it. But how cool was my dad? He could do that. How amazing. How powerful was he? He got the whole service station shut. He got the M4 shut. He shut this lorry down. He got it searched. In my six-year-old world, my dad was basically Superman. He could do anything. But as cool as that was, it's still not really quite on the same level, is it, as walking on water or feeding thousands of people with five loaves and two fish, or raising the dead. And the reality is that I've never met or heard of anybody who's done greater things than Jesus. So what did Jesus mean when he said this? Well, let's read what Jesus has to say. Let's see if we can kind of find out what Jesus means and what it means for us today. We're going to read from John 14. We're working our way through uh, the Gospel of John again here at Regent. And uh, Joel started this back off again uh, for us last week. And we're picking up, just picking up the last two verses that Joel looked at last week, just so it makes sense for us this week in the passage. And we're looking at John 14. We're going to read from verse 12 right through to the end of the chapter, verse 31. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, if you pick it up and engage with us and read as we go through, and I'll read it too. So John 14, verse 12. Jesus says this, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. 
If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own, they belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not, leave, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. As Jesus is talking to his disciples the night before he died on the cross in our place for our sins, he says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because... I'm going to the Father. Now, what is Jesus on about? Does he mean that his followers today, or that if we're his followers today, that we can do even greater things than Jesus did, better miracles than Jesus did? Is that what he means? No, I don't think it does. God may choose to perform great miracles through one of his followers today. He might do, and sometimes he does. But that's not what Jesus is on about here. Jesus says he's about to go to the Father. In other words, he's about to return to heaven. After he's died and, and risen again, he's going to ascend back to heaven and he's going to be seated at the right hand of his Father. And then he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to come and live in every single person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And then he's going to give them the power from God to live and to serve God as God wants them to do. And, and really crucially, to spread the good news that Jesus has died and has risen again. A few weeks after saying this to his disciples, as Jesus was about to leave this earth, he'd risen from the dead, and a few weeks later as he was about to return to the Father in heaven, he gave them and all who then follow Jesus, and that includes us here this morning, he gave them a command. And this command reveals to us what Jesus was really meaning here. As he's about to return to heaven, he says these words recorded for us in Matthew chapter 28. He says this, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So this great work, even greater than the miracles that Jesus performed here on earth, is to go into all the world and to tell people the good news about Jesus. So that people can respond, people can put their faith and trust in him, that they can follow him, they can be baptized, they can live lives that are obedient to Jesus' teachings. What could be a greater task than this? 
to rescue lost people from a lost eternity and give them an eternal relationship with God. God might bless me and enable me to perform all kinds of miracles like Jesus, but ultimately those miracles won't save people. So saving people or being the means by which people come to have a relationship with God through Jesus is an even greater work than any miracle that Jesus performed while he was here on earth. The Bible's really clear that unless we confess our sins and turn away from them, trust in Jesus and follow him, then we'll face eternity in a place the Bible calls hell, a place of conscious, eternal punishment for uh, our sins. And God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. The Bible says that God isn't willing that any should perish. So he sent Jesus to die on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, to make it possible for every single one of us here this morning and every person in the world to be forgiven, to have a relationship with God, and ultimately to spend eternity with God. And Jesus gives those who then believe in him and follow him the task of going out into the world and telling other people this amazing good news, the best news that we've ever heard. And what could be greater than playing a part in someone hearing the good news about Jesus, seeing them respond, and then themselves becoming a believer in Jesus and becoming one of his followers? There's nothing greater. There's no greater work than we can do. And it's amazing because God chooses to use ordinary people like you and me to be the means by which people come into contact with God through Jesus. He calls us his fellow workers that's amazing, isn't it? God uses ordinary people like you and me to be the means by which people hear the good news about Jesus. And as Joel said last week, the reason that this is greater than what Jesus did is because when Jesus was here on earth, he could only be in one place at one time. He never left Israel. But now because Jesus has returned to heaven, he's gone to the Father, now he's sent the Holy Spirit. And God, through the power and the person of his Holy Spirit, can be present in every single believer right across planet earth this morning. And every single one of those believers in Jesus can be busy telling people about him. So that instead of just reaching a few thousand people as Jesus did, as amazing as that was, we can reach millions and millions of people, which is exactly what is happening right now across the world. Millions of people are trusting in Jesus every week on this planet. It's estimated that in China, uh, 20,000 people give their lives to Jesus every single day. 20,000 people. Now, that's in a population of over a billion. It's still a tiny amount in the big scheme of things. But it's phenomenal, isn't it? There are tens of thousands of people trusting in Jesus all over the world at any one time. Look at what the Bible says. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It pleases God to use ordinary people like you and I to preach to lost people so that they can come into a relationship with God through Jesus. What we preach is often itself foolish. It's not impressive. It's just a simple message. And often the way we preach it is a bit foolish. We don't always make a, a great job of it. We may sometimes bungle what we're trying to say. And, and lots of people actually think the whole concept of Jesus dying on a cross is pretty foolish. That's a pretty foolish message. Why would you trust in someone who dies on a cross? But it's through this foolish, simple method of preaching with its foolish message of trusting in a man who died on a cross that God saves lost people from an eternity in hell. We get to, to be the people that tell the great news that on the, on the cross, Jesus was carrying out God's great rescue plan for each one of us and for them too. Jesus shows us this in verses 30 to 31 of our passage as he prepares the disciples for the fact that he's about to be arrested. As literally as he's talking to them, and we're going to see this in coming weeks, uh, Judas and uh, uh, his friends has 
were on their way to arrest Jesus. And Jesus is knowing this. It's just about to happen. And this is what he says as Satan is busy empowering and, in, and inspiring Judas and the authorities to arrest Jesus and then to have him put to death. This is what Jesus says. The prince of this world, by which he's referring to Satan, the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus was about, was about to encounter Satan, who had, who had uh, possessed and, and filled uh, Judas. He's about to encounter Satan in all his vileness. All of the powers of evil were there, concentrated uh, in, in the person of Judas. And Satan was about to kind of do his worst. And to the disciples, to the world around, and, and to Satan, it would seem as if Jesus had lost and that Satan had won as, as Jesus would die. But Jesus here is teaching that, that his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion was actually all part of his Father God's great plan to be the means by which people like you and I could be saved and have a relationship with him. And people needed to learn that Jesus loved his Father and would do exactly what his Father had commanded him, which included dying on the cross. Long before this world was even created, God knew that mankind, that humanity, would turn its back on him and would live a sinful life, would turn away from him and would need saving. And so he planned that his one and only son, Jesus, would come and die for the sins of the world. Before he'd even created the world, he knew this would happen. And yet in love, he'd planned to do this to rescue you and me. So we have a great, a phenomenal message. A message of a God who created the world knowing that we would still reject him. And yet despite that rejection, that knowledge of that rejection, God went ahead and created us. And, in, and at the same time planned a rescue plan for us. A message that God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son to die on that cross so that he could take the punishment for your sins and mine. And so as Jesus, risen from the dead and, and now in heaven, has departed from this world, he's passed on the baton to ordinary people like you and me to spread this good news. This is now our job. It's our responsibility. Jesus has done his bit. We are now the people who have to go and spread this, God, this good news. So God wants to ask to tell people the good news about Jesus. Write that on your outline. God wants me this morning, he wants you to actually be engaged in telling people the good news about Jesus. God's primary method of reaching lost people with the good news about Jesus is through you and through me. There is no plan B. If we don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. We are plan A. There is no plan B. If we don't do it, then who will? So this morning, who are we telling about Jesus? I don't mean as a church, we're engaged in lots of good stuff as a church, but personally, as individuals, who are we telling about Jesus? Who has God placed alongside you in your life that doesn't know Jesus? Who is it that you work with that doesn't know Jesus? Probably everybody in your office doesn't know Jesus. I guess that's probably the reality for most people. Who do you work with? Who do you live with? God has placed you next to these people. It's not an accident. God knew before he even created the world that you would be in the office that you're in, that you'd be in the house that you're in, that you'd be in the street that you're in. You are there for a reason, and part of that reason is so that you might be the means by which those people get to hear about Jesus. We can't control whether they accept that message, but what we can control is whether or not we share that good news with those around us. So who are you talking to about Jesus? And if you don't have any non-Christian friends or, or contacts, what steps could you take to put that right? Evangelism is all about being where people are. 
And if we're not where people are, how can we share the good news? So some of us need to actually kind of be intentional and actually I'm going to go and and engage with some relationships with non-Christians because right now I don't have any and I need to put that right. I need to be where people are so I can share the good news. It's not easy to do. It's it's, it's, It's a difficult thing to do, but it's something we need to take. It's a step we need to take. We need just to take a few moments just to think of four people. And if you can't think of four people, write three or two or even just one person that has yet to trust Jesus that God has placed in your life. Think of four names, maybe, maybe two names, that God has put those people in your life. Maybe someone you work with, maybe someone you live with, maybe someone in your class or your your lecture room or wherever it might be that doesn't know Jesus. They're not there by accident. You're not there by accident. I want you to just take a few moments and write at least one name down on your outline this morning. Write one name down. Pick your outline up. Take your pen if you haven't done it yet and write a name down on that list. If you don't do it, if we don't write these names down, it will never happen. We'll never get round to sharing the gospel with them. If we're not intentional, this stuff never happens. Let's take a moment to think, who has God, who has God placed in my life? Who has God placed around me? Who has God, whose lives has God placed me in? People, I am the message. I am the means by which they're going to hear the good news. And then I'm going to pray for us all that the Holy Spirit will help us tell those very people about Jesus. So just take a few seconds, write maybe one name. If you can write four, that's great. You might be able to write more. Write just a few names down of people that you're praying for or that you should be praying for, that you can try and share the good news with Jesus about. I'm going to pray. Father, I pray this morning for each one of us and for myself included, give us the boldness to and the intentionality to share the good news of you with the lost people that are all around us. I pray, Lord, for every single name this morning that has been written down. They're known to you. You created each, each one of these people that are represented by their names. May you this morning do a great work through each one of us, that I pray, that we might be the means of sharing the good news with lost people. Father, we know we can't control what they do with that message, but we pray in your power, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would convict them and bring them to faith in you, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for most of us, maybe this isn't the case for you, but for me, telling other people about Jesus isn't easy. I don't find that easy to do. I find it really easy to stand up here and preach for hours, but I don't find it easy getting alongside someone one-on-one and sharing about Jesus. I'm not an evangelist, and most of us are not evangelists, but we are all called to evangelize. None of us get a pass on that one. But Jesus knew this. He knew that as he was going to heaven, it wasn't just sufficient to leave the task of reaching lost people in the hands of people like us alone. We needed help, and we still need help. So look at what Jesus says in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. Jesus has been with his disciples, but now he's leaving. And they're panicking. They're they're, they're worried. They're afraid. And so he promises to send somebody else who will be there with them. He will be their their help and their strength. He promises to send the Holy Spirit. The NIV translates this word counselor. Some of your translations might use the word advocate. But it's, it's not like a marriage counselor or a legal advocate. The Greek word that it's translated from is paraclete. And it it literally means somebody who comes alongside and encourages and helps us. That's what it means. Somebody who comes alongside and encourages us and helps us. So this means that we're not alone in this world. We might feel really alone when we're in the workplace or when we're surrounded by non-Christians or when we're out there in what is often sometimes a hostile world at school or at uni or wherever. But we're not alone because Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit. 
We're not like orphans. The, the disciples thought they were going to be like orphans, left alone. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my spirit, and he's going to not just live with you. He's going to live in you. And Jesus has given us this amazing task of doing even greater things than he did. In other words, being the means by which lost people hear the good news about Jesus. And if he's done that, then we're going to need help. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at it. And I get scared of doing it. I get nervous talking to somebody about this. It makes me panic, and I, and I flap a little bit. And I'm not very good at it. And if that's true, and it's probably true for lots of us here this morning, then we're going to need help, aren't we? We need God's strength. We need God's help and power so that it doesn't rely on kind of how clever our words are or how slick we are. Up until that point, the Holy Spirit had been present with the disciples, Jesus said. But in a few weeks' time after Jesus has risen from the dead and returned to heaven and then sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would actually come and live inside people. He's going to come and live inside every single person who believes in Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. This isn't a physical helper that people can see. Jesus says here the world around us doesn't accept the Holy Spirit because it can't see him and it doesn't know him. But, says Jesus, God in the person of the Holy Spirit would come and live inside those that give their lives to Jesus. And once a person receives God's Holy Spirit in their lives, the Holy Spirit will never be taken away from them. That's great news, isn't it? It's not dependent then on how good I am or how bad I am. If I've trusted in Jesus, I am his forever. And the Spirit of God is that deposit guaranteeing my inheritance, Paul says in Ephesians. Because as we look at this great task that Jesus has given us of telling lost people the good news about Jesus, it can just be overwhelming. It can be terrifying at times. I mean, how on earth can people like you and me do this? It's beyond us. It's beyond our abilities. It's beyond our strengths. Certainly, it's beyond mine. But that's the great thing. It's not about our abilities. It's not about how, how clever we are, how smooth we are, our conversation or our patter or whatever else. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the, the, the helper that God has given us to work through us as we step out in obedience and tell lost people about Jesus. All God wants us to do is to take that step and do the talking. It's the Holy Spirit who has the life-changing power to, to, to take those words and transform people. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, one of the, the greatest preachers ever. Look at what he said in the Bible. He said, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, Paul was an amazing preacher, but he maintains that it wasn't his clever words, it wasn't his arguments that won people for Jesus. It was the power of the Holy Spirit working in him and through him. And that gives me great hope. I don't know about you. And it should give us all great hope because it tells me that despite the fact that the role that Jesus has given us here is just way beyond us, humanly speaking, and can sometimes be just terrifying. God has sent his Holy Spirit into our lives. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, the Bible says. Things that are beyond us, humanly speaking. So as we reach out to lost people, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our street, in our workplace, or through church activities, we can rely on the strength that the Holy Spirit gives to us. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work, not us. So write that on your outline. God wants me to rely on the Holy Spirit. It's really dangerous at times, particularly if we're really good at actually sharing the gospel and talking to people. We can end up relying on our own strength and trying to be clever and slick instead of just trusting in God, relying on the Holy Spirit. 
But wherever we're at, however, however good we are at this, we need to have the, the Holy Spirit's power at work. We have this paraclete, this holy helper, helping us in every aspect of our lives, but especially in this work of reaching lost people. Maybe this morning you love Jesus, but you feel alone, you feel helpless, sometimes you feel overwhelmed as you go into a, a world that is hostile to the gospel and is hostile to, to uh, Jesus and to you. I want to encourage you this morning that you are not alone. God has sent His Holy Spirit into this world, into your life. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are now the, 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 the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. God has sent His Spirit into your life, and the same Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Isn't that phenomenal? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you and is living in me. And as we share the good news about Jesus with lost people, we're not relying then on our clever words or our Bible knowledge. The Holy Spirit is the one that we can and should rely on. But as we seek to do these greater things that Jesus talks about, as we seek to be the means by which lost people encounter Jesus, then we do also need to play our part. It doesn't rely on the cleverness of our words, but we still need to use words. We do actually need to speak. We do actually need to, to talk to people at some level or other. We, had to, we need to play our part. And this comes in two aspects. First, you look at what Jesus says in verse 26. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. When the Holy Spirit came after Jesus had ascended back to heaven, from that moment on, he fills the life of every single believer in Jesus. And when he came and filled the life of the disciples, he enabled them to remember the words and the teachings of Jesus so that they could write them down in what we now know as the New Testament the New Testament of the Bible. The Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to write the New Testament for us. And in addition to helping them to recall the words of Jesus, the Holy Spirit also gave them additional teachings, and, and Paul refers to that, and so they were able to write the New Testament. And because Jesus says here that the Holy Spirit would teach the disciples all things, we know that there's nothing left to teach us. There's nothing to be added to the Bible. It is complete. Everything we need to know is contained in this amazing book. There is nothing to be added to it, and we should never try to add anything to this book. Everything we need to know is, this in, is in this amazing book. And because the Holy Spirit has completed this book for us, we now have all the knowledge that we need of God. We'd, like, we'd probably like to know loads of other stuff about God, but for whatever reason, God in His wisdom has given us all we need to know, and it's in this phenomenal book. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, and we have the power of the written Word of God that has been written by the Holy Spirit. So it's really important that just as we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we also need to get to know our Bibles. Write that in. I need to get to know my Bible. I need to know my Bible. Paul talks about uh, making sure that we are work, workmen who are not ashamed, who, who rightly handle the word of truth. And if we're serious about following Jesus, if we're serious about living for him, if we want to take seriously this great task of reaching out into a lost world and reaching lost people for him, then we need to know what God says in this great book. Our Bibles, your Bible, my Bible, should be your greatest possession on this planet. Sometimes I've been challenged about this myself. If we had a house fire and everything was going to be going up, what is the one thing you would try and rescue? Now, you might argue, well, I don't need to go and get my Bible because I can go and buy another one. Okay, I take the point. But what is the most important thing in your life? What is the most important thing in your life? Your Bible should be the most important possession you have. Let me ask you a question. When did you last read your Bible? And not just because I'm reading it this morning, but when did you last read it personally? 
Where is your Bible this morning? Is it at home, on your shelf, or have you got it with you on your lap? If you haven't brought your Bible to church today, why on earth have you not done that? Why on earth would we come to meet with God and worship God and listen to His Word being taught and not bring God's written Word with us? People died to make sure we have this amazing book in our language. Let's not treat it with laxness or laziness or contempt. We need to treasure this. We need to devote ourselves to reading it and to living by it. It's the written word. These are the words of God. And can I suggest not just using your phone? Smartphones are a great invention, and having the Bible on our phones is incredibly handy. I use it on mine. But, but can I encourage you to use your phone only as a last resort? It's, it's really handy. It's really great if you're out and you want to look at something. But can I really encourage you this morning, use a physical Bible. Bring a physical Bible to church. Research has shown, lots of research has shown, that when we read the Bible on our phones, we take significantly less in and we connect with it significantly less than we do if we have a physical Bible with us. It's really important to treasure our Bible as a physical possession, to have my Bible in my hands, that this is important to me, this matters to me, and I'm physically connected with it. And as we read and study our Bibles, we'll equip ourselves with a knowledge of God and have a better grasp then of the good news. So that with the Holy Spirit empowering us, living within us, we can then share what God says about himself, what he's revealed about himself in this great book with lost people. But it's not just about increasing our knowledge. That's a really dangerous thing that we can kind of drift into where it just becomes about reading the Bible for knowledge's sake. Jesus says this in verse 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command. Now it's vital that we read the Bible, but it's, if it's just about knowledge, then that's no good. We need to put into practice what we read about in this great book. The more we read it, the more we get to know how God wants us to live. But also the more we read it, the more we become aware of just how much God loves us. This is God's love letter to us. And as we focus upon the love of God for us, especially in sending Jesus to die for us, and we're going to think of that in a moment as we take bread and wine together, when we think of Jesus upon the cross being punished for our sins, when we think that if we've given our lives to him, then our sins have been forgiven and we have eternal life, then surely that must motivate us to love God in return. And this love isn't just a kind of fuzzy feeling. It's a practical and radical thing that should transform our lives. Jesus says this in verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he or she is the one who loves me. So do you love Jesus? Well, according to Jesus, the proof of that is whether you're living in obedience to him. Our love for Jesus is not just shown in getting to know what God commands. We can, we can all read the Bible. It's shown as we then obey those commands. And so if we love Jesus, then people should be able to see that we're different, shouldn't they? Obeying Jesus is a mark of our love. It's a demonstration of our love. And surely we do love him, don't we? We love him because he first loved us. But if you want to do these greater things that Jesus speaks about, if you want to be the means of which lost people come to know about Jesus, then our lives have got to be built upon, in a practical way, what this book teaches. Our lives need to be full of integrity, of honesty, of uh, purity. People know that we, they can rely on us, that our taxes are being paid properly, that we're not stealing things, that we're, we're, we can be relied upon in the, in, in the office to, to do our timesheets properly, that we have integrity, that we're known as honest people. Otherwise, we, we devalue what we try and preach if our lifestyle doesn't match up to what we preach. We should be people known as, as those who are full of grace and of caring and of joy and of holiness and of purity and sexual purity. 
Other words, our, our words will just be rejected uh, by those around us because they'll just say, well, you're just a hypocrite. People don't need much of an, of an excuse to disengage with the words that we say, do they? The Bible says that we should live lives, or we should live these kind of lives so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So write that on our outline. Write that on your outline this morning. My life needs to match up to my words. It's really important that I not only get to know the Bible so I'm better equipped to serve God, but actually I'm then living by the way that God speaks and commands me to do in the Bible so that my life matches up to the words that I speak. And as we live lives of obedience to Jesus, this will then give us an amazing platform to do these greater things, the work of telling lost people about Him. And as we read the Bible with a real hunger, and as we remind ourselves of God's love, and so fan the flames of our own love for Him, then surely we'll seek to be obedient to Him and live lives that then bring Him pleasure and honor and glory. And lives that give us then a great platform to be able to share that good news with those around us. And as we do all this, we've got God himself. We're not alone. We've got the Holy Spirit living in us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and is living within us. Empowering us, encouraging us, helping us, and supernaturally enabling us to do what on our own we could not do. And that work is all about reaching lost people so that they're saved for all eternity. That they live for him and that they follow him. God wants you and me to join him in this amazing work of reaching lost people with the good news about Jesus. There is no greater work that we can do. And as we do so, he wants us to know that we're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. And he can supernaturally do what we're unable to do. And he can transform people's lives. Our job is to be obedient in our lifestyle and to make sure that we're sharing the good news. It is the Holy Spirit who does the supernatural work of transforming other people, the work that we can never do. And as we share the good news with lost people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we need to arm ourselves with that knowledge of the Bible and live lives that demonstrate our obedience to Jesus so that lost people will be drawn to our wonderful Savior and come to a saving knowledge of Him. Let's pray. And we're going to sing together. Father, it blows our minds, it baffles us that you would love us. We know that we are so unlovable, and yet we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved us so much that you came and died on the cross for each one of us, taking the punishment for all the sins that we've committed, making us therefore clean and forgiven and enabling us to live in a relationship with you. We thank you, we praise you for your love. We thank you for the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But Father, thank you that you've given us also this wonderful, awesome, phenomenal task of sharing this good news with lost people around us. Father, if we're honest, it terrifies us, it scares us, we're not very good at it. Holy Spirit, would you fill us, would you empower us, I pray this morning. Would you give us boldness to go and this week as we interact with people who don't know you, to be bold, to live lives that are full of integrity and honesty and, and match up to, to your word. But help us too to, to speak out, to cross the room, to share the good news of Jesus, to give a tract, to give a Bible, to, to share the, just that little invite to something. Help us to do that, we pray. Help us to be those who will share the good news. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, as we do that, for each name that we've written down this morning, that you would save each and, each and every one of the names that have been written down this morning. Pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be at work in a powerful way through us as your people, through us as your church, 
that many, many more people would have the same privilege of worshipping you as we do this morning. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.